Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. I want to start today with another ORCID update. I'm afraid this is probably the last one we're going to have. Yes, I've now lost three blossoms from the ORCID, but I wanted to show it uh, so that everyone can say goodbye to it. This will be the last week. I think by next week it'll be uh, pretty scrawny, but they are gorgeous plants and their blossoms last so long. Uh, what a blessing they are. So with that, let's get started. I want to welcome you to this week's Walk Through the Bible. We are now in week 28, and we're reading this week in the Daily Bible, pages 863 to 898, or the dates of July 9th through the 15th in the Daily Bible. So let's review. We have been reading the story of the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And we have been reading about God's mercy over 200 years in the northern kingdom of Israel and even longer in the southern, where he first sent prophets to preach to the people, to invite them to repent and turn back to him and to point out to them their wayward ways. But when that didn't work, then he allowed their enemy to begin to defeat them. And little by little, they lost territory. And when that didn't wake them up, then finally it was over and it was time for the fall. So last week we ended with the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. It was a very sad day. But now we continue on with the southern kingdom of Judah. And we're focused now. We have talked about, I want to review four different kings. Last week we talked about King Uzziah, who uh, reigned for, I think, 52 years, very stable reign, and a good king. And then he was followed by his son, Jotham. And Jotham did okay, not so great, but then his son Ahaz was really the most evil king of the southern kingdom, led the kingdom into very serious idolatry and paganism. And then he was followed by a wonderful king, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah brought complete religious reform to the southern kingdom of Judah. He got rid of all the pagan places. He reestablished worship in the temple. And as we heard last week, he actually had a two-week-long celebration of the Passover. It was so glorious that they stayed for an entire second week. Now, this period uh, of these kings, I wanted to point out just some archaeological evidence that, that, that we have to kind of corroborate our story. And in 2015, in the city of Jerusalem, in the ancient city of David, uh, that part of Jerusalem, there was found an ancient, what's called a bula. And this bula is where it was originally made out of clay, and it contained the seal for either the king 
or for the leader that the seal was for, and it would have their name and the name of their father. And it was used then to stamp into uh, uh, wax or clay for uh, a seal over a document. And these bulla, when the cities were destroyed and there was fire, what the fire actually preserved these bulla, made them uh, stronger, and a lot of them have survived. And so in 2015, they found one of these ancient seals, and it said on it, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. What an exciting moment that was. It was the first ever find of an impression of an Israelite king that was found in archaeological, a scientific archaeological dig. Now, there was another seal that had been found before this, and it actually said on it, belonging to Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah. The only thing is that this one wasn't found during a fully documented scientific archaeological dig, but yet the scholars all agree that it is probably absolutely authentic. It was found in the south of Israel, uh, but not during a dig where they document everything. But so we have these two uh, seals from the kings of this period. Another very interesting find in 2018 the same archaeologist in the ancient city of Jerusalem that found Hezekiah's uh, or documented the finding of Hezekiah's seal found another seal, but it was partially broken. And so it's not 100% certain, but she believed that it was actually the seal that would have read belonging to Isaiah the prophet. Now, some argue, they say there's just a, not enough of it remaining to actually prove that, but that's pretty exciting too. Okay, so let's get to today's story. We're talking about King Hezekiah. We've got a couple of really interesting stories about King Hezekiah, and particularly his confrontations with Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Now, the chronology here is difficult in these passages about Sennacherib. And um, there are several campaigns of the Assyrians into the area. We know that. We know that part of the biblical story is actually documented in the uh, Assyrian kings, their annals and their um, their reliefs where they decorated their palaces. And so I'll, I'll get into that in a minute. But the Bible alludes to two different stories with Sennacherib. And um, sometimes the way it's written, you're not really clear. Is this a second time or is this just more of the same story? And so there's a lot of debate about this. So let me start with what we do know from archaeology and from what they have found in ancient Assyria. So we do know that in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel fell when the city of Samaria ended a three-year siege and fell. And that was under Sargon, who was a king of Assyria. We do know that about, oh, 10, 12 years later, somewhere around 712 uh, B.C., that there was a revolt in the coastal area of in Ashkelon, 
And so under Sargon, the Assyrians came back into the area. Well, if you can imagine, any time an army is coming into an area, they don't just deal with the one disturbance. They, they make sure that they're occupying along the way, and there's a lot of ramifications of a military campaign like that. But we do know that there was one around 712. And... Um, and then we know that around 701 BC that uh, Sennacherib came into the area and he has fully documented this uh, in his reliefs and back in Assyria that he came to uh, defeat Phoenicia and at the same time the uh, little states of Ammon and Moab and Edom, they all capitulated and restated their alliances with Assyria, and then Assyria came into the coastal area and came on down. And it's no doubt but that he would have confronted Hezekiah at the time of this campaign. Um, and more than likely, this is when then that Hezekiah decides to capitulate himself, and he pays tribute to Sennacherib, and Sennacherib then uh, withdraws. Um, the Assyrian annals brag, number one, about the fall of the city of Lachish, and they brag greatly about the large amount of tribute that Hezekiah paid. And the reason that they brag about this is because they wanted to justify why they didn't conquer the city of Jerusalem. This tribute justifies, so it's not a defeat. Uh, they won um, by the uh, exacting of this huge tribute that they received from Hezekiah. Um, the big question here is, did Sennacherib come back to the area later when we have this larger confrontation uh, that we read about? And when did Lachish actually fall? Was it in 701? Um, or was it on a later campaign? Was all Did all this happen in one campaign? It doesn't make a lot of sense if you read it as one. Why would Hezekiah pay tribute? And then later, why would God have to defeat the Assyrian army? So it does lend itself to that there were two different campaigns. And that makes perfect sense. Why? Because um, in 2 Kings, it does allude to the fact that Sennacherib had to kind of pull back, and because of the Egyptian forces at that time, which were under an Ethiopian king, and um, and so that Ethiopian king didn't rule at earlier at 701 BC, but was ruling about 15 years later. So it really does look like there may have been two different incidents here, just as the Bible says. And so in the first one, Sennacherib gives in. I'm sorry, Hezekiah gives in. He pays tribute, and Sennacherib leaves. But the second time around now, uh, we have this whole confrontation where Sennacherib sends his, um, his uh, leaders up to Jerusalem, and they're yelling over the wall, and they're threatening, and they're saying, don't listen to Hezekiah. 
Don't listen to this talk about your God. None of the other gods have been able to withstand us. We've defeated them all, and we're going to defeat you. And at that point, Hezekiah's assistant says, you know, shh, don't talk in Hebrew. Talk in Aramaic, please. And that's very interesting. Um, Aramaic was the... Um, the language of the Assyrian Empire, and so it was becoming a, a strong language throughout the region. And so Hezekiah's men and his people, they knew how to speak um, Aramaic. But this Aramaic leader also knew Hebrew. And, um, and so in uh, fluent Hebrew, he then lets them know because he wants the whole city to know. He wants them all to get fearful. Now, speaking of fear, the city of Lachish, the reason it is so important is it's down along that uh, international trade highway, but it guards the road up into the hills to Jerusalem. So when Lachish fell, it really made Jerusalem very, very vulnerable. And so knowing that Lachish had fallen produced a lot of fear in Jerusalem. Now, as I say, we don't know if Lachish fell 15 years or 10 years earlier or this second time around, but it would have produced a lot of fear. It made Jerusalem very, very vulnerable. And I want you to know that uh, the fall of Lachish was a very big deal for Sennacherib, and he went back to Assyria, and he built a large palace in Nineveh. He, he moved his capital to Nineveh. He built a huge palace, and in that palace, he built a room called the Lachish Room. And all around the walls in that room, he depicted the siege of Lachish and the fall of Lachish, and he showed the Assyrians coming and building a battering ram. And actually, archaeologically, at Lachish, they have found the remains of a battering ram. They found a lot of arrows in that area where the Assyrian army would have come over, and they also found a mass grave of about 1,500 uh, people. So, um, there's a lot of archaeological evidence to support the fact that Lachish did fall to the Assyrians. So Hezekiah is up in Jerusalem, and what is he doing? He is reinforcing Jerusalem. And one of the things that he knew was a vulnerability was the Gihon Springs. We keep talking about the Gihon Springs. That's how David took the city of Jerusalem to start with. And Hezekiah knew it was a point of vulnerability because Jerusalem's up on the hill. It's got walls all around it. But down below is this water source. And so he went down and they diverted the waters so that they ran into inside the city walls of Jerusalem. And today, when you go with me to Jerusalem, you can walk through what's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And it is where his workmen began in two different locations, one inside the city and one outside the walls. And they chiseled and they chiseled and they chiseled until they met. And they marched the place in the wall where they met. You can see all of that. And to this day, there is still water flowing through Hezekiah's tunnel. So get ready for that.
We also know that Hezekiah built up the walls, and he actually built walls, uh, reinforced walls, around the northern hill, northwestern hill of Jerusalem. And why is that significant? Well, Jerusalem was on this long peninsula hill. The city of David was there, and it had been expanded um, a little bit, but now there had been so many refugees fleeing from the Assyrians when the north fell, and they were now down in Judah and in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's numbers were swollen. And there were a lot of people living on this northwestern hill of Jerusalem, and they were not inside city walls. So Hezekiah extended and built a city wall there, and you can see part of it today when we go to the old city of Jerusalem, and you're going to look down, and you're going to see this broad wall uh, from the time of Hezekiah. So Hezekiah was building, was busy reinforcing Jerusalem in order to keep Sennacherib out. So all of this is really very corroborated um, by what we know archaeologically. Now, um, so we have this story where they're threatening and they're uh, actually blaspheming the God of Israel because they're saying, your God can't stop us just like nobody else's God could stop us. So don't listen to this Hezekiah. And um, Sennacherib then has to kind of get busy fighting with other skirmishes in the area. So they send a letter to Hezekiah. We've all read this story. We love it. Hezekiah goes straight to the temple. He lays this letter out before the Lord, and he says, Oh, Lord God Almighty, who sits above the earth, the creator of heaven and earth, you see these words of Sennacherib. You see his threats, and you know that none of those gods have been able to withstand him, of course. And then Hezekiah adds, of course, they were not real gods. They're just made of, of wood and stone. And so they've all been destroyed. But you, O oh God, you vindicate your word. And so he pleads to God. And God speaks then, not to Hezekiah, but to Isaiah. And this is the word that God speaks to Isaiah. And he says, uh, it's, it's a long section here, but the very end of it, speaking of Sennacherib, he says, by the way that he came, that he's going to go back, sorry. He's going to go back by the way that he came. By the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And what happens is during the night, it says that the angel struck the Assyrian camp, and that morning they woke up to find corpses all over the place, that 185,000 of them had died. And as a result, Sennacherib pulled back and left, went back home to Assyria. Now, this is an astounding story. The mighty Assyrian Empire, the mighty army of the Assyrian Empire, does not withdraw from this little Jerusalem and go home in defeat. So what happened here? 
Well, there is a later Greek historian wrote about 200 years later. His name is Herodotus. Herodotus is a little bit of a controversial historian. He likes to include legends in what he writes, but a lot of what he's written has actually been proven through archaeology. And he has a section in his writings that it's a little hard to understand and follow, but he seems to um, allude that there was a plague that hit the Assyrian forces at some point when they were near the Egyptian forces and that they had to retreat. And he said it was a plague brought by mice, which means it might have been the bubonic plague. So uh, can we say that for sure? No, we can't say for sure, but it sure seems to be that this story about a plague, about something that struck down thousands of the Assyrian soldiers, resulting in them returning to Assyria, there seems to be something there beyond our biblical story. So now, back to Hezekiah. You know, Hezekiah is kind of a funny fellow. So we have this story where he falls ill. And so God says to him, I love this story, because God says to him through the prophet Isaiah, you know, Hezekiah, get ready to die because you're going to die. And Hezekiah says he turns over, faces the wall, and he weeps. He cries out to the Lord about this and weeps. So then God speaks to Isaiah and says, okay, go tell him, I've seen your tears and I'm going to heal you and I'm going to give you 15 more years. I love that story because with God, our repentance and our calling out to him really does move mountains. And sometimes it moves God himself. And there may be certain things in play, but God hears our heart and it touches his heart and he changes it. So what an encouragement that is. No matter what you're facing, run to him. Even if it means weeping and crying out before him, he wants to hear your heart. So then it says, Hezekiah goes and gets prideful. Can you imagine it? And so the Lord's wrath was on him. And it doesn't give us any detail, but then it says, so Hezekiah repents. And what happens? The Lord repents, and it removes his anger from Hezekiah. So I love these examples of our repentance moving the Lord. And then we have this story about these envoys that come from Babylon. You know, this is not a far-fetched story at all, because there was a lot of rivalry already taking place at this point in history between Babylon and Assyria. Now, Assyria is the big, mighty empire, but even Babylon kind of rebelled, and for about 10, 15 years, they had their independence. It was a time when Assyria was weak, and then when Sennacherib came in, he's strong, and so he begins to retake this area. But there were always a little bit of play of between Egypt 
and Babylon and Assyria and then these smaller little kingdoms in between and who's going to form an alliance with each other and then maybe they could actually stand up against the big almighty Assyrians. And so the fact that the Babylonians came to Hezekiah, probably they were talking about a possible alliance. But we know the story. Hezekiah gets all caught up in the moment shows them all of his riches, all of his goods. And Isaiah says, you fool, you need to know that one day Babylon is coming in and they're going to take your descendants on the throne. They're going to take your children and they're going to cart all of this off to Babylon. And what does Hezekiah say? Can you believe it? He says, well, at least there'll be peace in my reign. So he's like, so what? This is going to happen with my children. At least we're going to have good times while I'm here. That's how Hezekiah, he seemed to be a a godly king, a king with this understanding of the need to reform the worship of God. But at the same time, he just seemed to be kind of shallow in moments. Um, But Hezekiah, even though he's given 15 years, Uh, eventually he knows his time is running out. And so he actually begins to co-reign with his son and uh, Manasseh. Now, this is a very interesting story because when Hezekiah dies 15 years later, his son Manasseh is only 12 years old. So what does that tell you? He was born during Hezekiah's extended life of 15 years. Hezekiah knows his days are running out. He knows Manasseh is going to follow him on the throne. He even begins to co-reign with him, but somehow he doesn't instill in Manasseh the understanding of the worship of the God of Israel, of the history here. He doesn't prepare him to reign in the right way. And what happens? Well, Manasseh, who ends up the longest reigning king of all of of Judah, 55 years he's king. He's known as the blackest history in the kingdom of Judah. He's worse than Ahaz. He, first of all, he says no more of this, you know, standing up to Sennacherib. He just pays tribute. He becomes a vassal state to the Assyrians. And then he just lets all of their gods come in. He is paganism everywhere, child sacrifice everywhere. They said it was such a bloody time for the people of Judah. This is Hezekiah's son Manasseh. If only Hezekiah had prepared him better to reign. Now, before we go on with the story of Manasseh, um, I want to talk now about the prophet Isaiah, because we are, um, this week, we are reading a whole section of Isaiah from chapters 40 to 48. So I want to make a few comments here. Uh, first of all, we also read, before we get into Isaiah 40 to 48, we also read out of Isaiah 19, where Isaiah is prophesying against Egypt. And there's going to be certain disasters that are going to come to Egypt. And it's really bad. It's a really bad time. And at the end of Isaiah 19 is this beautiful prophecy of this future time 
when there's going to be this peace, this highway of peace between Egypt and Israel and Assyria. And it says that they will go back and forth on this highway and that, the, and that, that um, Assyria, the, the work of my hands, and e- Israel, my inheritance, and Egypt, my people, will all be one. And so this is a prophetic vision, really, of, a, of the Messianic era. But do you know that today, throughout that whole region, there are Christians in Egypt and in Israel and in Lebanon and in Syria and in Iraq and in all these areas praying for the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 19, praying for each other. It's a a highway already that's being built today in the Holy Spirit and in prayer. And one day we're going to see a beautiful time of peace in this region. And that's what Isaiah begins to move into then that are compiled in chapters 40 through the rest of the book, actually 66. Some of your scholars, some of your critical scholars are going to tell you that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is made up of two sections that they think are probably written by two different people or more. Why? Because the first half of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, is really full of judgment and these woes and the, the prophecies against the nations and, and uh, the, the judgment that is coming. And then starting with chapter 40 through the end of the book, it's like it focuses more on restoration and redemption and these future regathering of the exiles back home and and this amazing thing that God is going to do. But that doesn't mean it's written by two people. You know, as we know, these are different oracles, and we see parts of vision and hopefulness in the early chapters of Isaiah, but it seems to be the theme. And so maybe these uh, oracles were just put together in this way in the book. I mean, there's many different explanations uh, for this, but it is true that in our week, in our reading this week, we begin a famous chapter, Isaiah 40, and it introduces a whole new attitude and a whole new uh, focus in Isaiah's prophecies. And it begins with this, comfort ye, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak comfort or speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What a beautiful verse. And it's announcing a whole new era Comfort my people. And the word here, speak comfort to Jerusalem, literally in Hebrew says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Let her know her warfare is over and she's paid double for her sin. And then verse three, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places will be made straight and the rough places smooth. That saying, announce it. 
The king is coming. And so go ahead of the king and make the highway straight. And they, they literally did that. Kings would have forerunners that would go out because they weren't, they didn't have paved highways. And they would go and they would prepare the road for the king to enter on. They'd make sure the stones were removed. They'd try to make sure it didn't go too much up the hill or too far in the valley. You wanted it even so it was easy on the king and easy on the horses carrying the chariot. So this is saying, comfort my people. Cry out. Be as one in the desert crying out and let them know the king is going, coming. Then verse 6, the voices cry out, and he says, What shall I cry? It says, All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is a favorite verse. Life comes and goes. We human beings, our life is very short on this earth. We're like the grass that springs up and then it's gone. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And it's because of God's promises, it's because of his word that his people can know what is coming and that one day the king will come. Verse 10, Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. I want you to catch here, it's saying that the Lord's going to come with a mighty, strong right hand and, and ruling like a king. And then it describes his tender shepherding heart. And this is the juxtaposition of who is this God? Who is this king that's going to come? And we're going to get into this more next week about the servant, the suffering servant versus the ruling king. And here you just have both of them, both descriptions in one section. But we're going to talk about that a lot more next week. And then it goes on, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as just small dust on the scales before this king. Verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? This is the greatness of God, that these nations are as nothing before him. These nations that have tormented his people— are as nothing before God. God is so much greater than even the Assyrian Empire. These are some of the themes I just want to point out that you're going to be reading from chapters 40 all the way to the end of Isaiah for the next two weeks. These are recurring themes. You're going to read them over and over. Uh, there's a special verse here in chapter 41, verse 8, I want to point out. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. We're back to Abraham. Remember, all of this is because God promised to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, 
And through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Those promises have not totally been fulfilled yet. And Isaiah is saying, God is saying through Isaiah, it's because you're the descendants of my friend Abraham. And verse 9, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Remember, this is being written in the middle of exile. And God is saying, I have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And behold, all those who were incensed against you will be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who war against you shall be as nothing, shall as a non-existent thing. God is saying, all these kingdoms that have come against you will be as nothing. My friends, today, where is that mighty Assyrian empire? Where is the mighty Egyptian empire that enslaved the Jews to start with? And then Assyria. Where is that Babylonian empire? Where is that Greek empire? And then the Roman empire. Where are these people? These empires are gone. But the Jewish people, they're still here. They are still here. His people, God is faithful to his word. And then we have in Isaiah 42, a section about the servant of the Lord. Once more, we're going to read a lot more about the servant of the Lord next week. But he says here, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Verse 6, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. And then in the next chapter, we talk about the Redeemer of Israel. And these are just recurring themes over and over. It says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel." So many things I could read that we, for you next this week, but I just want to skip down to uh, the end here in um, this week's reading, Isaiah 48. God says this in verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? For I will not give my glory to another. And this is my closing remark. One of the things that shows that the book of Isaiah was all written by one person is throughout the book he refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. And I want you to think about this for a minute. God says here that for his own name's sake, for his own sake, 
that he's going to do this because by letting his children go into exile, if he were to abandon them and to abandon his promises to them and his promises to Abraham and his promises to David, it's a profanity against him. It makes him look bad, not just his children. And so he's saying here, for my sake, I'm going to do this. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who he is. He will vindicate his name by fulfilling his promises to them. That's why we know that God's word is yea and amen. It is, as Isaiah said, forever. It is true forever. And that's why Isaiah could see his people going into exile, but he watched it with a ray of hope in his heart that one day God would bring them back and he would vindicate his name throughout the nations when he did. So stay tuned. We'll be back here next week for more. Enjoy your reading of Isaiah. Let it soak into you. See these repeated themes over and over. Let it be an encouragement to your heart in your life. As we bring today to a close, I am so excited to announce that this week we will be putting up a Going Deeper interview with world-renowned Bible teacher Kay Arthur. Kay and I had a conversation about the meaning and the message of Isaiah to us today. This was something that was really heavy on her heart, and she wanted to share with you how this message can impact your life. So please be sure and come back. In just a couple of days, we'll be putting up our Going Deeper interview with Kay Arthur. I also wanted to just ask you to do me a personal favor. Do you mind just going down below on the platform that you're listening to and press like or subscribe to this channel? It just helps us to reach a wider audience if you are liking these programs and subscribing to the channel. So I just want to say thank you. And one last reminder, if you have not yet downloaded your third quarter reading guide so that you can read through with us for the next few months, please do so at outofzionshow.com. Look for the tab that says Walk Through the Bible, and there you'll find the link to download the reading guide. We will also put a direct link in today's show notes right down below. So I love to hear from you. If you have questions or comments, please let me know what the Lord's doing in your life as we are walking through the Bible this year. So that's it for this week. And until next week, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.